Welcome to Dean's Council, a podcast aimed at supporting university leaders holding one of the more critical jobs on a university campus. Your panelists, Ken Kring, Jim Ellis, and Dave Eikenberry, engage in conversation with highly accomplished deans and other academic leaders regarding the ever-complex array of challenges that deans face in one of the loneliest and most unique jobs in the academy. For many decades, business schools were defined by their traditional MBA two-year degree programs, none more so than the Tuck Business School at Dartmouth College. Yet we all know that the era of wonderful secular growth in this traditional MBA experience is behind us, at least for now. As an economist, Matt Slaughter saw the tremendous threat that this had for Tuck, particularly given the constraints that Tuck had in its remote location. In this episode of Dean's Council, we hear how Matt brought clarity to not only sharing the need for change, but the process for how that change could successfully occur. Co-creating with all the stakeholders at Tuck, Matt defined a tangible mission that all stakeholders could embrace, one which has thoroughly transformed the learning experience at that school to the point where it is in fact the defining element of the school's brand. It's why people come to Tuck today. Despite the unique challenges and traditions that Tuck is endowed with, there are takeaways in Matt's story for deans from all stripes. The circumstances we face surely differ, but the approach and the process we need to lead our schools through strategic change, without a doubt, share common elements. We hope you enjoy this episode of Dean's Council. Matt, it's great to have you on the show today. You've been at Tuck for eight years going on your third term now. You come to this job as an economist, and I know you've had, you know, you you bring some perspective as to what we're trying to do as I use the word traditional business schools. What's your perspective of the past and, and, but where do you see it going and some of the challenges you see in that? And and how has Tuck, how have you and your team and Tuck and more generally responded to that? Thanks, Dave. It's great to be with you all and great opening question. Most of us in business education, and you're right, I've been at, I've been dean at Tuck now, finish up my eighth year with another term coming. I've been at Tuck about 20 years as a faculty member originally, and then associate dean in different roles before serving as dean. If you go back, I mean, gosh, we could go back decades, a few generations, really. There was pretty secular growth in all aspects of business education. So if I think about supply and demand, that was the case for when most of us who were in leadership roles in business schools, when we came into the academy and our time in in B-schools as as faculty and deans in different roles, and especially in the heart of it. Most of our schools, the heart of what we have done and and continue to be, at least in the eyes of the world, is that full-time two-year MBA degree. And demand growth for that has ceased in recent years. And if anything, a lot of the American schools, the top schools, have seen a, a noticeable and unprecedented decline in the number of people applying to their programs by about, give or take, you know, a quarter. So any industry where you've got a set of organizations that were a lot of strategy envisioning and articulation and implementation and the culture around that was in growth, it's been a pretty dramatic change to suddenly be in an environment of uh, absence of growth, if not decline to some extent. So all of our business schools have had to really, I think, adjust to that pretty quickly. For us at Tuck, it's a bit of a canard, but I, but the world thinks the only thing we do is the full-time two-year MBA. Um, we've long had 
many other lovely programs. I can come back to that in our conversation. Um, and yet we relative to other schools, we're pretty long in the two-year full-time MBA. And so for us in particular, I think this shift has uh, been a, a great nudge to really, among the dean's team and all the great colleagues and stakeholders at Tuck, to really um, think more clearly about what we think is our mission and strategy in terms of what we offer that's distinct and valued, and then making sure that we're articulating and measuring and delivering that with even greater intentionality. So how I broadly think about that opening question. Happy to kind of take it in whatever direction you like. So if you take that, just what you said there, one of the things that we really always struggle with, all of us, is how do we differentiate our MBA program from the other MBA programs offered around the country? We all teach debits and credits and net present value and discounted yeah. cash flow for piece of marketing. But how do, how do you look at Tuck's, you know, like you say, the distinct offerings that you have, the distinction of, you know, a school that is an Ivy school that's got a great reputation. But how do you how do you do that in such a way that that people think of Tuck in a, in a different manner than they think of any other school? Because as as we all know, some of these lesser schools are going to struggle and close their doors or close their programs, and some have already started to do that, as you allude to. Um, and yet, the good schools can differentiate in some form or another, or right on the coattails of their university. Now, how do you look at that in terms of, of marketing your way into success as opposed to just growing your way into success? Oh, a great question, Jim. What, what is triggering me is some memories when I, when I transferred, I had the honor to kind of step in and be Dean after being associate Dean of, of our students and MBA program and faculty. Um, some of our stakeholders said, Hey Matt, the biggest thing we need to do is get clear to the world, Tuck is the best at X. And I said, got it, tell, tell me more. And what I would often hear is people would say, well, there's this well-known school that's known for leadership. There's a well-known school that's known for finance. There's a well-known school that's known for marketing. And they kind of go down the, the kind of discipline-based answer. And so I got it. My faculty colleagues at Tuck are awesome. And yet I've always known we have compared to peer schools somewhere between, you know, a half to a sixth the size of their faculty. So from a, we, we create and teach and, and help apply knowledge, but from that knowledge creation perspective of the research mission of all of our schools, it, as amazing as, as Tuck faculty are, and I put myself in that category as one of the faculty, just we we're never going to be the predominant knowledge creator in discipline acts in part because of our scale. You know, we have a little over 50 tenure track FTEs at, at, at Tuck these days. I, I would have, I'd have to go look, but I'm guessing that's about the size of the finance faculty at Wharton, for example. You know, so I, I, it's, we've got amazing scholars at Tuck across disciplines. But, but when I hear that, I would always be like, hmm, what distinguishes Tuck is not a, a depth and breadth of the scholarly domain. But that's how most people have thought about it. And then it, this is even before the pandemic, but I think we, we, we ran a really nice process for a couple of years at Tuck to say, well, what, let's, let's refresh our mission statement and let's get it clear what we think is our strategic value proposition. And I love language. I write a lot and, and I've done that with my outreach and policy work over the years. And, and there wasn't clarity in our community about when I'd say, well, what's the mission of Tuck? I'd ask 10 people and I'd get 13 answers. 
And so it just became clear to me that we needed to run an exercise with faculty and, and, and other stakeholders, some staff and students. And so, and we did two iterations actually. So we let our current 11 word mission statement is Tuck develops wise, decisive leaders who better the world through business. And then the, our strategic value proposition in all of our programs is we, we offer a personal connected and therefore transformative experience to our to our students, but ideally to the staff and faculty involved as well. And so you'll notice in those words, what we think that's distinct and valued is building a trust-based data-informed learning community where people can build trust, human trust and pedagogical trust and then pedagogical capabilities that enables them to take risks and fail. That enables them to build sort of lifelong relationships with students, faculty and staff. None of what I just said had was about a specific scholarly area. Research is integral to that, but that was a process that we ran even before really this drug that we all realized there's a there's a trend break. Demand is falling for the heart of what we do. And before the pandemic, and, and we could talk about the value of that in the pandemic, perhaps. But uh, but without in any way sounding boastful, you ask someone today, you walk the halls of talk and say, hey, what's our mission? And, and people know it. And, and, and across all of our programs, the heart of what we do is the MBA, the full-time two-year MBA. But we've got amazing other programs, degree-granting programs. We've got a partnership, great partnership with Geisel School of Medicine and some called the Master of Healthcare Delivery Science. We've got some great certificate programs. They all aspire to create that personal connected, therefore transformative value proposition. And just last thought, and I'll pause. Personal means I often frame it as bring your whole self. I, 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 at some point, I don't care why you earned admission to talk. I care about the gaps and capabilities and challenges. And then we're going to connect you with great classmates, amazing faculty, alums, ideas. And if you really co-invest with us in that way, you're going to have the chance to transform, yes, your professional opportunities and human capital, but transform who you are as a person more generally what you do in life. That's our value proposition that I think we do in, in ways – that's pretty distinct, frankly. Our location, which people have often wondered about, because Hanover's lovely, but this is not a major global metropolis where the vast majority of our peers are. Our location is really an advantage to that co-investment that I just spoke about. So I hope that speaks to kind of what you were asking, Jim. Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah. Matt, could you could you dig a little bit deeper on the process? You have these 11 words that you referred to, which when I reflect on that, what I I kind of hear you saying is we're kind of reshaping the culture of Tuck. We're reshaping the way we want people to feel and the way we want people to think. It's one thing to do focus groups. I'm being facetious here, of course. It's one thing to do focus groups and come up with your 11 words. But how do you go from 11 words to getting the faculty to authentically embrace that, getting the staff to feel energized, you know, the more important piece. In other words, how do you walk the walk after you have that talk in place? Yeah, great question. So, and this speaks to a lot to all of us that are deans. We've got, we're not for profit with key stakeholders. So we're different from firms. You're not the CEO. It's not like, hey, I'm the firm and I'm coming in. If you don't like it, here's the door. And, you know, an essential stakeholder are awesome faculty colleagues. And, and, the, and the nature of the labor contract is very different than it is in, in any other organization, even though they're not for profits. Again, if I put in my faculty member hat, I have, a, I have a labor relationship with the trustees of Dartmouth College that grants me academic freedom and, and to pursue the scholarship and the, and the research and the teaching that I would like. That's, that's amazingly powerful for the advancement of 
human knowledge, and that's a key asset of American higher education. So faculty got to be involved. You got to have students involved. You got to have alums involved. And to me, staff. And I think higher education too often uh, staff is an afterthought. So I realized I'm the dean. I got to hold a master pen. But what we did was the process we ran at Tuck was we had the dean's team at the time. We have a faculty strategy committee who helps us think through strategy uh, implementation issues and envisioning issues. So the process that I ran was focused on the dean's team and the strategy committee, but with focus groups in different ways, working with the student board here and leadership and our alumni advisory entities that we have. Like most peer schools, we've got our Tuck Board of Advisors, which is the main advisory entity. We have my predecessor, Paul Danos, who did a lot of great stuff. We created, he created the MBA Council, which is a younger alumni version. And we have three global councils that help us think about our presence around the world. So it was a lot of conversations and I wanted everybody to feel they had some input rights and deliberation rights and they could hold the pen if they wanted to. But at the end of the day, I went away and held the pen mainly with the Dean's team. And, and our first iteration, by the end of my first year, I think it was, we had a first version, Tuck educates wise leaders to better the world of business. And then we socialized that in like our awesome branding and communications folks. We put out collateral, you know, folders that had those words on it. And then we listened. And the, the biggest thing I heard actually was from a lot of our alums who said, hey, you know what? Wise leaders, that just sounds a little too ivory towerish, like the owl with the glasses. And we get it, Matt, and that's great. And then we think that, you know, tell us what wisdom means. We were starting to develop related collateral language. So these were, were just kind of platitudes or sort of like eating cotton candy. We we're like, wow, that's really tasty. And 10 minutes later, you're still hungry. So that was a big thing. People didn't like wise alone. I'm like, yeah, I get it. Because business, like we got to be, we're forced for good in humanity, ideally. And the other things that didn't land well, or quite as I intended was, people were bigger about educate. They're like, well, do they come wise or do you make them wise? Are they done afterwards? So that was like, okay, there's some ambiguity around education. And people didn't have a sense of agency when it was too better the world and it was better the world of business. And a lot of alums and faculty and others said, but some of our alums are thriving in the in the in civil society or in, in sovereign governments. You know, one of the most successful leaders at Tuck, Tina Smith, Tuck 84, she's the senator from Minnesota, my home state. So then we did another iteration, Dave. And and so we listened, and that's where we hit upon the current eleven words. Tuck develops wise leaders who better the world through business. And then and really important, we've got then mapped to the we had a similar thing around our value proposition to get that clear, like our colleagues in admissions were in all of our programs are saying, hey, and then especially as the world we realize hmm, applications aren't growing like they used to. We realized we need to get crisper to prospective students in the MBA and our other programs about what we thought was the value proposition strategically that followed from that mission statement. And so in parallel, that's where we came along with personal connected and transformative experience. And I stress experience because we really stress there's the classroom learning, the co-curricular learning and application and the career journey, that thicket of the overall journey. So it's a lot of conversation, a little messiness, a lot of, I still like pen and paper, writing down words and right. eh, that doesn't quite write. So I, I think of faculty, I, I totally agree with your statement about the staff, by the way, but faculty have this huge point of engagement, particularly in the larger numbers, you know, classroom environment. How did you get how did you get their buy-in on this or or was there a little bit of a yawn or, or, or did they feel like they had an equity position here and needed to 
lend into how did that all fit on the faculty side yeah great great question it was a sort of a trifecta of our faculty strategy committee which is one of the most important ones here so continual conversation with them right in our periodic faculty meetings i'd socialize it and talk about it we just kind of have some open conversations mm-hmm. that was a second dimension and then the third was what i'll just call the open door or on campus here there's a little pond occam pond and i'll go for strolls with colleagues or and, and alums. And so the third was, I was sort of like, Hey, if you just got some ideas. Let me know. Right. You know, let the Dean's team know, or let me know. So everyone, I, th- my goal was for every faculty colleague, be they tenure track or clinical, right. And we know this is another dimension. It's important for really important for me. We've got awesome clinical faculty colleagues here. So who's they've got amazing current jobs in the world. They come teach a little bit. We got full-time teachers here that their contribution is, through the amazing enriching the learning environment. So everybody had a knew what was going on and they knew they could weigh in if they wanted to. And some colleagues were very engaged. Some were like, Hey, great. Don't care. Or, I care. I care. I don't care. I don't care where we get to. I care. We're doing it. You know, and at some point you just, you take out input and learning. All of us deans got to learn this. Anybody in a leadership role, people may have strong views and you can say, I got it. And on balance, here's why I'm going in this direction or that direction. Right. But I, part of my goal was for no one to, to think or feel, hey, because we're really trying to lay this down in a fresh way for talk. I didn't know or I didn't have the chance to be heard. I think, first of all, I have to congratulate you on getting it down to 11 words because the, the Academy is not very good at shrinking those visions and statements down to 11 words, as we well know. <laughs> you know, they, it tends to look yeah. Yeah. you know, a horse by committee and all of a sudden you've got a 50-word vision statement, mission statement, et cetera. So, yeah. you know, Congratulations on that. That's hard to do. Um, you know, one of the benefits that I see you guys having is small and intimate. And and by that, I, I, I mean, not only the 50, 50 tenure, tenure track faculty, because, yeah, there's the size of the finance department at Wharton. And so you're not going to win in terms of the number of publications. You may win in terms of the the number of publications per capita. Exactly. Which I wish that the rankings guys would look at that instead of total numbers. That's just something I tried. Because I looked at our at our faculty, which was about two-thirds the size of Wharton, but I was never going to get there because I didn't have enough enough guys publishing. But if I if they were really productive, they were beating them on a per capita basis. Yeah. But but still size size becomes an issue. And in your case, it's a plus. Yeah. From what I've heard from alums students of yours very positive about what you talked about and that's the relationship between the faculty and the student that goes on well beyond the the two years that they're in the MBA program and I think that's a huge plus the the question that comes to my mind is Hanover is a difficult place to get to what's it like from a recruiting standpoint what's it like getting getting the companies to come to the campus to recruit um, or do you have to kind of move students into Boston, for example, and, and say you're going to go in a recruiting day in Boston. How do you how do you deal with the fact that you are so isolated geographically? Yeah, great question, Jim. So there might have been a time where the message that Tuck and to some extent Dartmouth communicated to the world was Hanover, colon, only two hours from Boston and four to five hours from New York. And by that, I mean... We 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 implicitly were saying to the world, like any strategic asset, it, it's got some pluses and minuses. And implicitly, we were focusing a bit on the minuses. 
I think we have embraced more confidently in recent years. Again, all this is a total team effort. And I'm going to come back to recruiting faculty. It's about student staff and faculty. I think we have, we have part of this process of rearticulating uh, what makes Tuck distinct and valued has been owning our location a bit more and, and knowing it's not going to be for everyone. And I think getting comfortable with that. To me, strategy implementation and the culture around that is getting comfortable with saying, here's our strengths and we really focus on this. We're not by definition going to be able to focus on these other things. And that's okay. And if you really value those other things, then maybe we're not the best match for you, whether you're a faculty member, a staff member, or a prospective student across all of our programs. So Tuck has never been able to fall below global minimum scale. I'll call it again, the economist. So if you look at the, the, we have a photo, we have pictures. If you come into Tuck Hall, we have an array of pictures when you come into the foyer of every graduating class from the first MBA, of MBA students, uh, of the MBA cohorts. First cohort in 1900 was four men. And you know, now it's the class of 2023. We just put up the picture. I think this year we overyielded a little bit. I think we we're at like 298 for that class. So our location and scale are kind of co, co inter, they're, they're interacting in terms of assets. Hanover is, is a lovely picture postcard, New England town. It's, if you've never been here, like the central business district is three blocks. So this is not Manhattan. This is not Boston. This is not Chicago. This is not London. And so if I answer your question a little more specifically than for each of the three stakeholders, for faculty, it, it, we will say, look, if in your heart of heart, you are so immersed in your peer-reviewed research and, and, you, and you are going to value almost that entirely, and you immensely value PhD teaching and, and mentoring and, and co-authorship of those students, then in terms of your research and teaching happiness, you just won't be happy here at Tuck. You may be amazing and you may go on to win Nobel Prize and other things, but this isn't going to be the right match for you. So we offer an amazing array of research supports and teaching supports, but for faculty, they've got to really value the blend of what it means to be a teacher scholar here and that the research has got to be rigorous and relevant. For students, I, I only half jokingly will say to prospective students, man, if you're not ready to co-invest in a community where our location means your pre-existing professional and personal networks, um, you're largely, you, you'll can, you'll stay connected to them through social media and stuff, but day to day, you'll have no contact with them because an expectation almost no student comes here unless they grew up in the upper Valley, as we call it with any pre-existing networks here. So that it's a real asset. If students choose that, then they can amazingly co-invest with the richest, their classmates and faculty and staff. But if, if that's not what they want, that's okay. They're still learning debits and credits. You said earlier in a lot of other great schools, but not, we're probably not the match for you. And for staff, it's the same value proposition. On firms, the, not to have shade for it, but one of the silver linings of the tragedy of the pandemic was we were able to greatly expand the number and nature of recruiting relationships. Because as a lot of us know, pre-pandemic, especially in MBA programs, the sentiment and culture was, if you want to demonstrate as a recruiter commitment, you've got to be physically present on these campuses. And there's a lot of great organizations that said to us, look, we get it, but coming for one day in January, may end up being three or four days if Mother Nature delivers a snowstorm, to be honest. It's just lovely. We get four seasons here. And so, but in the pandemic, as we now know, mo almost all leading global recruiters now, much of that initial and first round interviewing is done virtually. So that's been an asset for us. So I hope that speaks to your question. One footnote is one of the challenges is it's always been present, but it's rising, is partners, two people actively in the labor market in the household, because we're not a large, thick labor market. 
Yeah. And escalating housing costs is another just challenge that we face in, in childcare. That's true in a lot of places in our country, but we're really feeling it in, in here in the Hanover area. Matt, so you, this, this focus and clarity you brought to your mission and, and sharpening the value proposition. Do you have any metrics of, you know, can you see in some kind of a tangible way what the progress on that has been since you ruled this out several years ago? Or is it just kind of an intuition from talking to your various constituency groups? And what have been some of those success stories? Yeah, thanks, Dave. I'm an empirical economist, so I value data a lot. So we think about measuring whether we're delivering this distinct value proposition in a couple in in two ways. One is kind of data and external outside in perspectives. And this links to something both you alluded to, which is rankings. And then also just a I'll call it bottom up, inside out, data and anecdotes in a sense of are we articulating and, and getting the quality of the match of the people. By that, I mean, I think tuck is not for everybody. You know, if, if you do not want to really have this deep trust-based co-investment where you aspire to transform who you are, it's okay, but this probably isn't the right place for you as a student or as a staff or faculty colleague. So the outside in measures, we, 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 we think what we do very well is the rigor and relevance of our learning environment. Like a, a, a second thing is that we're really delivering that labor market success in terms of getting a job and high and, and rising initial income. And third is because we really have stressed this transformation is lifelong, it, is our alumni network really thriving? And so we know these rankings are noisy, and but but the world rightly is going to expect all higher ed institutions to have some sense of are you delivering on your value proposition? And so we we when we focus on the rankings and in particular the components of rankings that measure the quality of the learning experience, because again that's part of the transformation is going to be you're here to build your human capital and your human capital for work. So that second one uh, on job success and is it lifelong? The the rankings are components of rankings that assess quality of learning labor market success, alumni engagement, we really outperform. And if anything, we've ticked up a bit in those in, in recent years in those rankings uh, without sounding like a commercial. You know, Bloomberg Business Week asks recent alums, did you, what's the quality of learning? In lots of different dimensions. And, you know, our point of view here is the students better say, I, I, boy, I was challenged. I learned a lot. And it's a little bracing when you look at schools where they fall in that. We, 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 we focus on that one a lot. Labor market success, our students do extremely well in terms of gaining employment and, and initially high and rising incomes and, and alumni engagement. Our outside in measures of those, I, I can't prove this to you, but I will assert, and you need to take it at faith, the quality of our learning in, in terms of student evaluations has never been higher in the MBA and a lot of other programs. Uh, we've just got faculty really, and the amount of innovation that we're doing in terms of new courses and things is, is remarkable. So that's really rolling along. Yeah. The student's sense of satisfaction, our awesome career services team, it's not just do you have a job in compensation. We measure and track internally. Do students feel the process worked well for them? That That is, is, is quite strong. And then alumni engagement remains high. One of the metrics we really value here is when we look at our annual fund, what we call TAG, Tuck Annual Giving, a benchmark that we really value is our alumni giving back to the Tuck School. And we still have in recent years north of 60% of all living Tuck alums give at least a dollar back to the school and tag every year. And that is, that is, we know of no other institution, undergraduate or graduate, 
school or entire college or university in higher education that's that's above that. And it's a pretty big gap between what we see and anybody else. I agree with that so much. It's funny because my last question to you was going to be, how do you instill that in those alumni? Because you are light years ahead of any other institution in terms of percentage of undergrad, percentage of grads. I've watched that number for years and I go, how the hell do they do that? Because it's, it's, I mean, outlier. You're not even just a little bit better. You're way better in that situation. I mean, way better. And I go, how, why didn't I figure out how to do that early on? Because it's spectacular. That's kind of total team effort. I'm just, I, so much what I get to do is just building on the uh, legacy of predecessors and others. And yet we're really intentional about measuring and nurturing that and listening. You know, we've just closed a capital campaign now where our goal is 250 million in cash and commitments. And I think as of close it today, our guesstimate is we're going to commit at about $415 million. And I think about 81% of all living alums will have participated in this campaign. Wow. So I think that it comes back to where we started this conversation a little bit, articulating what's distinct and valuable about Tuck, and then really trying to communicate to all the stakeholders, here's what, here's what we're trying to do, here's how we're doing it, we're open to improvement, um, and let us know in different ways. There's, there is a bit of momentum here, and part of it is, the other thing I'll say is, the economist me, in the background I'll stress, and this has been, I think, invigorating, we're, we're a lot more productive. We're, we're generating even more productivity growth at Tuck than we used to. My first four years as dean, we decelerated the growth of tuition in, 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 the, in, in the MBA and our other programs. And now we've got four years running. We won't be able to do this forever, but four years running where we have not increased MBA tuition or mandatory fees by a penny. We've held it flat at $77,520. And I, I'm not, I don't think there's any other school that's done that in a 20% cumulative CPI environment. That speaks in part to the, the generosity of our amazing alums, the success of our other complementary programs, our certificate and exec ed programs. So, it, but I'll stress too for the deans listening. It, the other thing is, you can you can envision and articulate a fresh mission and strategy, but it's the implementation and the culture that I think is so critical. Getting just frankly a great team and the right people in the right roles. Like you don't get as dean, you don't get more time. So unless you've got colleagues that really help, they, they share the vision and, and, and kind of where you're going. Like it's just, you're just going to knock yourself out. <laughs> you can't, you can't do it. So. Matt, this has just been a wonderful conversation. I want to thank you for taking the time and, and sharing your perspective on this. Yeah. It's just what a, what a great experience. Thank, thanks again, Matt. We really, really appreciate it. No, thank you. I will not be Dean forever, but we got, there's a lot we're still doing at Talk, which is great. And I'll just stress, I, I, thank you for having me in this conversation. And I'm here on just behalf of all my great faculty, staff, colleagues, students, alums. It's a, it's a pretty special community to be part of. I think that it's, so it's fun. So thank you. You've done a great job. Great. Thank you, guys. Keep well, everybody. Interesting conversation, Jim. What did you think? Well, Dave, I really, it was a very interesting conversation. I really focused on a couple of things. Number one, his inclusion of all the shareholders that he has. I mean, he's got a lot of people that are very involved from alumni to faculty to staff to students. And to bring all of them in as he did his strategic planning and his thought process was terrific. But then to distill everything down to 11 words is magical. Um, that's how people remember. It's like, like he says, walking through the halls, people remember. Well, because it's not a 
an entire chapter. It's 11 words. And um, he's really made that happen. And, and I know that that um, the, the development side, the alumni engagement really is, I think, based on that. I think it's right, right. the fact that there is longevity in the dean's office and continuity of leadership is really important. The fact he's going into his third term. His predecessor was there a long time. That's really an important thing as well. There's not a churn yeah. at the top. So uh, I, I got a lot out of it. I thought it was superbly done. Yeah, I I totally agree. I also, there's so many things about Tuck that seem to be firing well, even in the face of the challenges they have, you know, in a strategic sense, the remote location, uh, difficulty formerly in getting recruiters to come on site. But what I was really struck with is, and this is kind of piggybacking on your observation, Jim, because of that strength with, with his, with Paul Danos and, and, and other, you know, great leaders prior to them, they have such strong systems, their systems work, you know, to various degrees, but it's a matter. So what that does is it allows Matt to work at a higher level and 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 really bring efficacy and efficiency to this strategic outreach. I was just, you know, obviously that this alumni network that he has, the seeds of that were sown decades ago or generations ago. But because that had happened, he's able to really leverage that today and, and take it to even new heights. And I for us deans who you know, if we can have that perspective of where are we in our I'll use the word maturity. How 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 well developed and mature are various systems that lend some insight into practical next steps. So anyway, I was just fascinated by that that whole thing, and I was I was uh, also really intrigued about how by by using these eleven words of mission and purpose, how that was able to really sh- shape each function, whether it was new student recruiting, faculty recruiting, all of those issues, uh, just, and and to some extent, how COVID actually helped them, not hurt them. I I just found that really, really interesting. It it did help them a lot. I agree. Level the playing field for them. Yeah. Where they could have been playing from a position of weakness, they right there were in a very level playing field. So that you're absolutely right. It was really good for them. Yeah. And, And maybe it's restating the obvious, but this notion of differentiating on some disciplinary area i've always disagreed with this this idea you know wharton is finance kellogg is is marketing if you if you dig inside those institutions what you find is they've got strength all around the corners it's just those historically momentum has swung the the pendulum to to focus on that area and it hasn't really swung away very far but but this notion of an experiential distinction and if you remember, you know, our very first podcast with Heidi Kessner out of Kelly, she kind of did the same thing, you know, where she was, it was an experiential feeling that was yeah. pre-existing at Kelly. She just happened to bring language and articulation to what that pre-existing feeling was. But, you know, I, I actually think that Great business schools are going to be challenged if they define themselves on a narrow disciplinary focus. A, because we don't live in it for the most part. 
we don't live in a disciplinary environment. It's cross-disciplinary. But B, uh, you know, if we, you know, if we're going to focus on entrepreneurship, that's a, that's a buzzword, you know, buzz, buzz focused right now. What's the accounting faculty going to, if I'm an accounting faculty member, how do I contribute to the grand strategy if I'm teaching debits and credits? And, and I can, I've actually lost faculty uh, over this problem is I, I think it's great to have a vision and that is actually inclusive and doesn't tell people, Hey, you're on the junior varsity. The, the varsity people are, we're going to be in the middle here, but the rest of us players are going to be on the edge. I just, I don't know how you win with that kind of a focus. Yeah, you're right. I mean, you're absolutely right. Can't because there are changes too. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, no, that was, it was very well. I really enjoyed it. It was great. You did a great job. Excellent. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dean's Council. This show is supported in part by Corn Ferry, leaders in executive search. Dean's Council was produced in Boulder, Colorado by Joel Davis of Analog Digital Arts. For a catalog of previous shows, please visit our website at deanscouncil.com. If you have any feedback for us, please let us know by sending an email to feedback at deanscouncil.com. And finally, Please hit follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast player so that you can automatically receive our latest show.